Guess what? It's Christmas sharing time again. Um, as I say, this morning, a lady, I have no idea who she is other than she was at Ace Hardware talking to Bruce, and she had a car full of coats and other things she didn't know what to do with. We've got them. Last week I said that we'd get our names. We have them. We have 140 families coming this year, plus some others, but just think of the 140. About 60% of them are from uh, Southeast Asian, primarily Burma or Miramar, however you want to name that country. And which means, um, if you're thinking of things, they're not tall, they're shorter people. We d I do have my list of special requests. And again, we have a lot of people needing snow boots. I do have some sizes. A lot of them I don't. I do have ages. Um, diapers, again, some ages, some sizes. We have... Uh, one family, I didn't put it on here, their request was they just want to be prayed for. And I'm trying to think if I should put that on a special request, Wes, <laughs> or not. And I'll put these out. These will be posted downstairs, but I'll put them out if any of you want to look at this after Bible class. And Monday night is our big initial setup night. Um, Families can come. We especially need guys because there's a lot to be moved. So if you're not doing anything on Monday night, come at 7 and we'll put you to work. That's it. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Carol. Okay, let's say a quick prayer before we go on with things. Lord Jesus Christ, sanctify us with your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Okay, thanks, Carol. Uh, it's, it's great. As lo as, um, such a uh, remarkable opportunity and so well executed. I mean, seldom do you get to a chance to put your effort into something and know that your return on your investment is so high in terms of what the good that's actually being done. So thank you to everybody who participates. Make, it's going to be great. Um, do you have any questions, anything we need to talk about before we talk about things? Okay. So I, was, I really enjoyed talking about that painting last time with you all, the deposition of Christ. And so I was thinking about this painting this week. This is, a, this is um, part of an altar piece that sits above an altar in, I don't know how you pronounce it, Ghent in Belgium. Is that right? Ghent? Ghent in Bel Belgium? Is that the one with the stone? I don't, I don't think so. Maybe. Perhaps. Okay, could be. All right, excellent. So there's some intrigue involved in it, too. It's a massive altarpiece. This is just one small panel uh, in the bottom uh, of the altarpiece. It's, a, it's a, not a triptych, but a, like there are many panels. So it, it's closed for a big portion of the time, most of the time during the year. And on the, I'll, sometime I'll show you the, when it's closed. There's, it's the picture of the Annunciation, and then there are the prophets sitting above looking down at this fulfillment of everything they'd hoped for. Uh, but this panel is particularly uh, of interest. It's the Adoration of the Lamb, which, you know, the reason why I pulled it up is because I had always taken it to be the marriage feast of the Lamb. Um, 
But I, as I look at it, I, it's hard to discern anything that's particularly um, nuptial about it. But I wanted to just show it to you and, and get your observations. What do you see? As I know it's tough to see, but what do you see? Uh, what's interesting to you? I see a baptismal font in line with the altar. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, so this isn't going to work that well. You can see a little bit. No, that's pretty nasty. Okay, hang on, hang on. Let me. Let, so bear with me. There's some great pictures in this video. Um, if it'll load. Let's see. Shoot. It's not going to load. Okay. So at the bottom of the, that fountain is a little spigot coming out, and it's a stream running in which direction? Towards us, right? Um, the image of running water, living water, is everywhere. It's everywhere. So um, you, you, know, you see it from the beginning, from Pente- the Pentateuch, from Genesis, through um, the Exodus, through the Red Sea, through Naaman getting uh, baptized. And then even in Song of Songs, we hear, um, he, says, he says, my bride is a garden enclosed, and he describes her as a spring-fed garden, right? Living water, uh, which Jesus then pulls, refers to again, as we get in, in, especially in John, when he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Pastor Bruzik's going to talk about that this weekend. Um, but then in, when Jesus stands up in the temple mount and says, I am the living water, he's ta- he's, that's him right there. Water which is pouring out from eternity uh, to wash you. Okay, what else do you see? Kirby. I see four sections of society. Yeah, right. I see, it looks like the royals, the, the, learned, the learned, the peasants, and the religious order, but they're all that's right, yeah. It's kind of cool that nobody has favor. Nobody has favor. That, now, those are great observations about the, sort of the fundamentals of it. They're coming from four directions, right? From the four corners of the earth, okay? They're all the same distance away, so nobody has priority. Um, although, yeah, I suppose in this group, say in this group, you've got these people are ahead of these people. Um, there, how many? There, there's about 12 of those people there. So you can imagine the prophets or the patriarchs. Um, but yeah, and they, up here you have... Popes and leaders of the church, bishops, um, people reading, from, reading their Bibles right here. This is, all, this is a bunch of especially young maidens, um, which I think really harkens to mind the image of the, the bride being young and pure and chaste, right? Uh, what else? What else do you see? The lamp. The lamp, right. Yeah, the, cent- the, cent- the central focus of it, right? Martha? It looks like in these front two groups, which are the ones I can see the clearest, you've got a couple of little pockets where like, everyone's facing the lamb, but in the far right corner and then sort of the leftish corner, they're looking, it's like they're looking at something else. The guy on the left in the white robe yeah. is not looking, you know, it's like, what are, what are they looking at? What are they reading? Right. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, what do you think? What do you suppose? Is, uh, what are the possibilities there? I mean, it's, it's certainly deliberate, right? You, it would be one thing, it would be clear if everybody was looking at the lamb, right? That would say one thing. The fact that they're not, uh, what does that tell us? Maybe they're checking their... I think, I think that that's a fair get, right? there. So it's just like we say in the creed, um, according to the scriptures. I wouldn't, we, we have, we, how, does it, how does it go in the creed that... Um, Crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, right? According to the scriptures. We always, we always kind of pause 
There's no comma there. We pause. It's one long line, and so we kind of pause when we say it according to the Scriptures. And at times, if you're really cynical, you, you kind of hear it like, well, according to the Scriptures, he rose from the dead. But that's not what it means in fact. It means quite the opposite. It means, it means he rose just as the Scriptures said he would. Not like because the Scriptures tell us so, but he rose in accordance with what the Scriptures said was going to happen. So, of course, it makes sense that you get to the end and you're like, hey, this is exactly what it said it was going to be. And, that's, and uh, I think that's a, I think that's a, a, a real potential uh, uh, option for what's going on there. there. This is great. Everything's coming to fruition. Everything's being fulfilled. What else? Do you see anything else? The cross. The cross, yeah. So the angels around the, the altar there, they have, I wish this was a better picture, a cross. And then they have um, the post to which Jesus was attached while he was flogged, right? What are the angels doing at the bottom there? Do you see what they're doing? They're doing the Pastor Nelson yes. <laughs> big swing in the incense, right? Those, things, those sensors are ups- fully upside down. If you do that, everything falls out. So, um, But hey, it's heaven. So, I wish you could see this better. Yeah, Kathy. I know. This is the best part of it. I wish this was better. Um, there's a chalice. That, hang on, hang on one second. Hang on. Let's see if I can find a better picture for you. I should have done this beforehand. Let's see. That's right. Uh, Images. Thank you. Let's see here. It's got to be something. Loading. There you go. There's. Oh, the first one's the, the right one. Okay. Yeah, that would be the, to zoom in there. Let's go. There we go. What's the thing that looks like a stovepipe? That's the post that Jesus was attached to while he was being flogged, right? So you got the chalice. I mean, in it, the detail. So one of the things that's peculiar about this painter, Van Eyck, he was, he was. Uh, it was observed that he had such attention to detail. So this is a massive, massive painting. Um, and, uh, but it's not so large that things like um, the background uh, is very large, right? The buildings in the background are not very large. And yet, if you zoom in on them, you see individual windows. Um, the grass is, every blade of grass is painted. All of the leaves are painted. Um, and, and so if you look closely at the blood coming from the lamb, it is not just like, this conceptual stream of water, but it's, it looks like it's actually pouring out of his side into the chalice, like you would in real life if it was actually doing that. Uh, it's really cool. It's really, it's really phenomenal. Um, okay. Anything else you notice? In the sun, is it thinking also the- up, up at the top? Yeah. There's a dove up there. In, the yep. The yep. That's right. And, and those rays of light are you know, deliberate, so they're pointing at even... Even this fellow over here who's not really looking, right? He's got a ray of light coming straight to him. Yeah. And then you've got, uh, yeah, the trees are fruitful. Um, these people over here, look at what they're carrying. Can you see? Palm branches, right? So it's a, I mean, it's a processional, uh, just like just like on Palm Sunday. And if you if you um, sort of note that 
of the occasions that you might celebrate in life, which are the, which are the most obvious ones, right? Weddings, maybe birthdays, retirement, right? I don't know. Um, what, but wedding is, weddings are by far the, the sort of the, the archetypal party, right? The, and the, um, the most ritualized uh, events in our lives. And in fact, I was reading Robert Jensen who, who says, isn't it interesting that even uh, romantic relationships that don't fit the character of marriage, so romantic relationships that are illicit or that are in rejection of marriage, um, even they are ritualized. If you think about it, right? There's, there's a ritual. There's inevitably a ritual because it's, nobody, everybody has to observe that this has got some significance beyond just you know, the electrochemical reaction. Um, and, so, and so when you see ritual, when you see a procession, um, you always have to have at least somewhat in your mind that this is, uh, this is hearkening to a marriage, right? The procession of the bride to the bridegroom to be wedded. Um, you, as always a celebration. There's going to be a party afterwards, right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Any other thoughts? I really, so this is more for me than for you, because I really enjoy hearing what you have to say about this stuff. So thank you for that. Let's take a look at Song of Songs. Okay, so we're, we're about on chapter 3, more or less. Um, and what I'd like to do today is just talk about chapter 3. Um, if you were, uh, I, I don't know the answer to this, if you were going to say what chapters 1 and 2 have been about so far, what would you say? There, what's been going on in 1 and 2? I think it's very, very interesting what both of you are um, getting out of it. It's true. Pastor Nelson and I, we, ta- we, we kind of like, we talk and then we diverge and then we come back and we talk some more and then we diverge. We, and so it's, been, it's helpful to hear, for me to hear the things that he has to say too. It's very, uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot that you can pull out of this. But chapters, chapters one and two, what, what would you say are the main takeaways from chapters one and two? Donna. They're delight in one another. Perfect. Their delight in one another. They love each other. Okay? And um, it's this, it, this description of this excess of their love for one another in every possible way. So now, I think you'll observe that as we read chapter 3, that this is, in some ways, it's, it's an, uh, an anomaly. It doesn't really fit in that vein. Okay? So just, just listen to this first poem, verses 1 through 5. Um, and we'll just talk about the details, okay? On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so 
let's just talk. So there's two two important ways to talk about everything that's going on in Song of Songs. One is the what we could call the overt sense, just the face value of it. Another sense is the theological sense, right? So we're going to interpret it theologically in just a bit, but just the overt sense. What's going on here? If you were going to if you were going to reduce it to prose, what would you say? Surely. That love is at its own time and that it's, uh, that, that it's wonderful, it's always there. Okay. Well, uh, now I'm going to disagree with you. Do you think that love is always there in this poem? No. Right. They're stressing it that, that it's, well, maybe not always there, but it's on its own time. It's on its own time, right? Okay, perfect, yeah. So, so in fact, it's, the, it, she, she's not finding it when she's looking for it, but it's there nonetheless, right? But why is she looking in the middle? I mean, it, it, a, um, yes, maybe this is a dream, but just it's an anomaly between one and two, and then all of a sudden, right? Has she lost? It? Has she lost? Right. So, so do you try and picture an argument? Right. There's a there's a array of possibilities, right? An array of possibilities. Maybe they had an argument. Maybe this is a dream. She's on her bed by night, and she's looking for him, and she can't find him. Doesn't know where he is. Okay? What, so continue. What else? How does the story go? Well, as soon as she asks where he is, he's there. <laughs> right. It's just like magic, and all yeah. he's there. Where so, did he come from? That's right. It's magic. Uh, so she asks right here, and then he appears. Now, okay, so how do you feel about that? How does that strike you? Is this a, strange? It's strange, right? But also, maybe going back to, I mean, why look for something that's there? Okay, so... so if, if you're seeking happiness, you'll never find it. If you're something, you know, something. Okay, yeah, so, so now... Why look for something that's not there? So she... she Are you, you're looking for it, but you can't see it because it's maybe just so present. Okay, that's a possibility, right? So she's looking, in, say, in the wrong places, right? Or not seeing what's right in front of her face. Or not seeing what's right in front of her face. Okay. How does this, how does this sound as... What do you think about him in this story? What's he up to? We don't know. We, we don't know. Just being a thank you. That's what. He's just not. He's you know. He's off playing basketball with his friends. Well, she's she's not even looking for him. It's like she thinks about it at night on my bed by night. I saw him. Like so, what were you doing during the day? Right, that's right. That's right. Seems to be more busy with other stuff. Yeah. Seems to be more like a. It does. It's so, yeah. Like she she's, loves him and she dreams that he's not there and it's panic. In the same way we dream things and suddenly they get resolved in our dream and we're like... Oh. That's right. Yeah. Or you wake up and realize it was a dream. Right. right? Oh, that feels more extreme shame. She feels more like... So then she's like going to hold, like how you wake up. Maybe you dreamt that your children... Something happened to your children. That's right. You wake up off and, like, and then you're like ugly with extra clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe she had been thinking about what if, right. what if he, he wasn't here, 
that she about. Right. Good. Martha. She kind of says, don't stir. It's almost like she's saying, this is what happens to you when you stir love up. You get like crazy. <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Uh, unless, unless perhaps, unless you're ready to be crazed in searching for him when he's not there. Make sure you're sure of Right. Yeah. Martha. Um, well, two things come to, to mind for me. One is, and it, it is, just the whole thing is weird. It is weird. At night, I personally have more time for introspection, for quiet, for seeking study, whatever you want to call it. So maybe it's a, it's a, it's more of a pull for her at the end of the day when she's not, you know, or I, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could, right. She's having this, like, focus on him now. Yeah. Well, I think I think your your point, Kathy. You know, she, maybe she was. I mean, just really practically speaking, she had things to occupy her during the day, but now at night, when you expect to settle with your beloved, right? He's not there. And there, I assume there's some significance about the mother's house. Yeah. How about that? So interesting. Okay. So also weird, right? I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house. And into the chamber of her who had conceived me. So she's not. So she. So she's not just identifying her as her mother, but she's saying, by the way, if you don't know how this happened that she got to be my mother, it was because she conceived me in this chamber, right? A lot of detail there. Very interesting. Hang on to that thought for a second. What else do you observe? Right. Okay, so she and this, this she says this is the second time that she says this. She said that earlier. Yep. It's the same it's the same formula. What would you call this? What she's doing right here is a simple word for what she's doing. She's What's that? It's a, it's a, it is a refrain, right? Because it occurs it occurs again and again. But in her speech, what is she doing to the daughters of Jerusalem? Emphasizing the importance and she's that's right she's emphasizing it to the point of holding them to an oath okay i adjure you right swear to me o daughters of jerusalem that you will not stir up our lake in love until it pleases now if it's an oath by whom is she swearing not by god by animals that's weird by the gazelles or the does of the field. I mean, what? It's like I swear by my dog that <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't quite make sense. So are they are beautiful, and in fact, they the word for gazelle. This is so. This is really interesting stuff. The word for gazelle has a homonym in Hebrew. A homonym is a word that's spelt the same but means something different, right? Um, that means beautiful. Okay? Likewise, hang on for just a second. This is going to get technical. The word, either gazelles or does, I get them too mixed up. One of them, it sounds like this. Tzavi. Tzavi in Hebrew. Which sounds like the word for the Lord Almighty, the God of hosts. Tzavaoth. 
Sabaoth. You've heard that before. The Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. Um, whoever wrote this is playing on a lot of really interesting nuances of the Hebrew language. Okay, so gazelles or does of the field is sort of the overt, the overt sense. That's what you that's what you see. But underneath that is a, an oath by something much more significant, right? An oath by what's beautiful and by the Lord of hosts, okay? Which is an indication in everything that we do when we're studying Song of Songs that um, this is not just secular love poetry. The, the poet is drawing left and right from really important biblical Old Testament images, um, so hang on to that thought for a second. We see it multiple times in this text. Go ahead, Shirley. Is there a reason, maybe, why she three times urges the others not to force love? In, in one to five, it's, it's, it, it seems like you, you said she's repetitive. That's right. But, but if, if you count her repetitive, it's like three times. In, in one through five, you're saying here? What, so tell me where that is. Uh, okay, let me read again. <laughs> she does repeat herself. She repeats herself. Over and over again, even here. Where she's, she tells them to seek it. That's right. She tells them, there's, there's three, to saw him, to seek him. That's right. And then there's one more. So take a look at this. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I will seek him whom my soul loves. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? It, but the number three seems to stand out to me. It, it, I think that you're probably right. Um, and in and, and all three of those, she's, she's urging them not to force love, but to, as I said earlier. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that that's, that's sort of um, her perennial advice to the, the listener is, look, love is not within your, it's not, something that you're going to manhandle. It's not something you're going to control, right? It's going to be something that overwhelms you to the point where you cannot help but seek and um, even in the, in the dead of night. What's, what's peculiar about this repeated phrase here? I sought him whom my soul loves. I will seek him whom my soul loves. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? I found him whom my soul loves. I mean, that charts the narrative for us, right? But what's pecul- is there anything peculiar about that to you? It's funny, she's just saying, I sought him whom I love, but it's my soul. Okay, that's right. That's absolutely right. So she doesn't say, I sought my lover. She says, I sought him whom my soul loves. Nefesh um, is the word for describing your innermost being, but it's not used lightly. It's not like you just uh, toss it out whenever you want. You, You say it when you mean it, right? My nefesh loves. Okay. Donna? Uh, it's progressive. She doesn't give up. She doesn't give up. Okay. Which, by the way, I think is part of what he's doing here. Okay. He wants her to seek him. So, why, so this is my hypothesis. Why is he not there on her bed at night when she seeks him? So that she will seek him. Right? He's, not, he's not absent so that he is you know, um, unavailable when she needs him. But she's, he's absent so that she will seek him. Does he have a name? She, doesn't, she evidently doesn't know his name. I saw it him whom my soul loves, right? Who is he? He's the one whom my soul loves. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's peculiar that she doesn't 
that she that she identifies him in this this uh, circumlocution. She doesn't get to the point. She says, "I sought him whom my soul loves." Does that remind you of anything else that you know from the Bible? The love of your soul. How about this? Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there, in this verse, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is invoking the name, he's using his name, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Right? Who is the, who is the love of your soul? It's the Lord. And does he have a name? It, think about think about the role of God's name in the Old Testament. How does how does God's name play a role in the story of Israel? Can you think of the the key events where God's name is important? How about this? When oh, go ahead, Nancy. The fact that He revealed His name, you know, because for them was very important to know the name of God. And of course, his name was just, he says, I am who I am. And so, he replies, he is who he is. Right. But I mean, it shows it's more than you can put into one concept. That's right. Yeah. So, so, it, so his name is, is full of excess. We'll talk about that in just a second. But there's a point at which Israel doesn't know God's name. Right? So, Moses is going to go to rescue Israel from Egypt. And what's his objection, or what's his, he says, wait a minute. Yeah, when they ask me who sent me, what am I going to say? Right? How, how, how are they going to know that this God is the one that, so tell me your name. And God gives him this cryptic answer, which then we spend the rest of Scripture really sort of unfolding, which also has, um, which is unfolded in great richness in Exodus, what we read this morning um, in, the, in the chapel. There, you have the, you have the people of Israel led out of Egypt. They receive the Ten Commandments, but while, they're, while Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, they're worshiping the golden calf, right? Breaking their marriage vows. Um, and Moses is just disturbed because he's got this stiff-necked people that he's supposed to lead. Um, and and he, he says these great things to God. He says, what? Did I give birth to these people that I should also, you know, nurture them and take care of them. They're yours. You take care of them. So he has this conversation with God, and he says, look, I, I need to know who you are. I need to know who you are. And uh, insists that God shows him his glory. So in chapter 34, this is what it says. He gives, he, Mo- Moses is on the mountain with the two tablets, the two new tablets. By the way, there's just sarcasm all over the place. God says, cut yourself two tablets like the first, which you broke. And then he, and then he says, uh, Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Quote, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. That was the name that was given to Israel. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So God's name is bound up in all of this action of faithfulness, this faithfulness that he's carrying out. And so it's, it's no surprise, of course, that she can't, you know, put a, put a pin on his name because it embodies this faithfulness of be, you know, being there when she seeks for him. 
um, and loving her in excess. Um, so you can see what the, the point is. In, in, there's a couple of key things to take away from this. In the first place, this is a strange sort of uh, cryptic story if you just read it at face value, right? It's, I don't know. You could, you could fill in the blanks and maybe you'd, under, maybe you'd say, oh, that was interesting. Um, but when you interpret it theologically, when you see it hearkening to uh, the story of Israel and Israel's relationship with God, all of a sudden the blanks start to fill in, right? So, him whom my soul loves, who can that be besides Yahweh, right? The Lord your God, who you are to love with your soul and all your might. Um, and who, by whom could you swear besides Yahweh, right? The Lord of hosts. So now, how about this? I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Her mother shows up a lot in Song of Songs. She's all, she, she doesn't talk about her father. She's always describing things in terms of her, her mother, right? My, the, my brothers, the sons of my mother, cast me into the vineyard to work. Who is Israel's mother? Uh, so, well, in the New Testament, we would talk about the church being the offspring, the church being the mother, right? Israel of the Old Testament. Here, I, I ran into a quotation. Take, just listen to this for just a second see if this makes sense to you. In both Testaments, a major city or a nation is imaged as mother. So this is, this is really sensible that your, your city is the mother of your people. Again, the source of nurturance and identity. Most importantly, this image characterizes Jerusalem. That seems to be one aspect of its meaning in the song. The best evidence for that has to do with uh, these words in verse 4, which seem to be quoted from the prophet Hosea. Uh, Hosea denounces Israel's infidelity, saying, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. So Hosea talks about the mother, she who conceived me, but she was unfaithful. She was unfaithful. Her mother was unfaithful and uh, and her, conce- her conception was tainted because of that. It's probable that with this echo of the poet, of the, with, the, with this echo, the poet of the song intends to reverse that old and shameful image. Once the mother, the nation, and especially in the eyes of the prophets, its leaders, sinned, and as a result, all her children suffered exile and enduring national shame. Now, this is the key, the lover is coming into the mother's house and even her private chamber uh, to reverse what had been the, the shame that had been done before, the shame that had been carried out before. So this is all, in, in a way, a bit speculative, but um, it fills out the richness of the, of the song for us. Do you have any questions? What's going on so far? Okay. Take a look at the next set of verses here. Um, this gets even more, I think this, is, this gets even more explicit for us. This is easier for us to attach theological significance to. But first of all, just think about the overt meaning. Just what's going on. What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke? And I have to, sorry, before I go on, that what is that, that should really read, who is she? It changes everything. And the reason this 
so in in Hebrew, every word has every noun or pronoun has a gender, feminine or masculine. Um, that the word that is feminine. Okay, um, it's referring to a feminine noun in the future, um, and that word what is literally not the word what. It's who. The word is. There's this goofy thing in Hebrew. The word that's pronounced me, me, means who. The word that's pronounced who means she. It's just messed up. But anyway, the word is me, which means who, okay? Who is she? Okay, so hear that. Who is she coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Do you know what a litter is? I gave you a picture of a litter. That's a litter, okay? You search for litter on Google Images and you get trash. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon, Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, an expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid. This is beautiful. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Okay, so what's going on here? Who's the she of this King Solomon? Okay. That's right. So, So we've got she right here, and then... Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. And I think the thing that is tricky is we assume that if it's the litter of Solomon, it's Solomon riding in the litter. But it's probably not. Is that the Ark of the Covenant? So now there's these, these fascinating things. Or the temple? So a litter looks like, you saw the picture. If you substitute a bed, uh, if you substitute for a bed the Ark of the Covenant... It looks just like the Ark of the Covenant, carried on two poles like that, like on a litter. The same thing is true for the Tent of Meeting, which was um, the, the place where God promised to talk to Moses and to deal with the people of Israel. Um, but who is, who is carried in the litter? Well, it's not necessarily Solomon, okay? So we don't, it's, it's ambiguous at this point. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Okay, what, what else do you observe? What's going on here? Yeah, she is surrounded, or whoever it is, is surrounded by all of this force, okay? Right? Sixty mighty men, they're all ready. Expert in war. Good. What, is she, what, does, what does she look like in the first verse? I think it's really helpful to forge this in mental image, okay? So what does she look like? Or what does her approach look like? Smoke. It looks ethereal. There's right. Looks ethereal. There's smoke. So you can picture this. You can picture this. There's the sense of Yeah. Just visual. There's a. That's right. Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, columns of smoke. By the way, so this is this is crucial. Um, myrrh is is an ointment. It's all purification, just like that of incense. Right. Yeah, it's the uses of these myrrh and frankincense is extensive in the Bible. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But frankincense... Where's gold? So you, so you hear... Yep, that's right. You hear straight ahead to the gifts brought to Jesus, myrrh and frankincense. Frankincense 
um, smells when it's burned, right? It's incense. It's incense, which tells you a little bit about what the columns of smoke are all about, right? It's not just like she's on fire, but she's got burning incense coming with her. So you, so you can see, so pretend you're on, you're with Solomon or whoever her bride, her groom is, and you see off in the distance, who is she coming up from the wilderness, okay? So you're in this, a city, presumably, and there is the wilderness, and you can see into the wilderness, and there, uh, who is that person coming, accompanied like, like, like columns of smoke, and you can, it, the, the smell is, tra- is traversing this long distance, right, perfumed, with myrrh and frankincense just smelling lovely. Smoke and lovely smell, right? So that's, that's the, the first image that's put into your head right here, okay? So now uh, she's accompanied by this massive force, okay? What else? What comes next? What, is, what do verses 9 and 10 remind you of? Building of the temple. That's right. So, wood of Lebanon. The only time we hear Solomon talking about constructing things like this is when he's building his palace and when he's building his temple. And this sounds, I mean, this sounds like temple, temple language. Wood of Lebanon, silver and gold and purple, right? And then this, and its interior was laid, inlaid with love. It's like, it's like, you know, that they can't, what was it? What company was it that had to take off of their labels made with love something like oh, they had in their ingredients love they had to take it they had to take it off of their labels because it's not that true but um, and then at the end we're, we're, we're taught we're shown what's, what exactly is going on here right so, so King Solomon is wearing this crown what kind of a crown is it so it's a crown for his wedding so, if you were going to tie this together in terms of um, Israel coming, processing with uh, incense to, uh, to her bridegroom in the temple, um, which is made of silver and gold and purple and the wood of Lebanon, um, all of a sudden, we have an image of the worship of Israel at the temple, which is a wedding. There's nothing less than a wedding. Um, so, this, so what's going on here is a description of the life of Israel, a pattern of the, of the way things go with Israel. So in the first place, over here, you have uh, the recurring story of Israel sort of uh, being asleep, comfortable with the, the idea that God is with her, right? Just, just confident that God is with her. And then she wakes up and discovers that God has left her. Usually in the stories that we hear in the Old Testament, it's, it's because of something that she's done. So, for instance, in Exodus, when, she, when Moses is on the mountain, listen to, listen to what happens uh, in Exodus 33... The Lord said to Moses, this is after the golden calf, just as happened. There's a plague on the people. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to your Abraham. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. These are devastating words. 
but I will not go up among you, God says. I will not go up among you. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. For if, a sing- if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Um, so it fits the pattern, right? God, the people of Israel were, were at, asleep in their sin, right? Confident that, that what they were doing was, was godly as they were worshiping this golden calf. And God says, look, I'm going to leave you for a bit now. A, so that I don't kill you. And B, so that you come and, you come and search for me. And then this remarkable thing happens, this miraculous thing. Uh, they receive the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, and Moses says, go and get your, go and bring me your stuff. And they bring so much stuff, right, that they, they just is an abundance. So they faithfully hold to his word. But then it happens again and again and again, which is why you do, it's not, it, we don't ever get a really satisfying direct connection between what's told in these poems and an instance in the life of Israel, because it's, it's really reflecting a pattern of their life. Okay, which also reflects a pattern of our lives, right? So you can imagine easily moments in your life where you you wake up assuming that God was had been with you, and you discover that He is absent, right? He is not with you as you thought He was, or with you in the way you thought He was, right? Something tragic happens, uh, or you find yourself caught in sin or in guilt, right? And God is not with you. And what's the, what's the purpose? Not to abandon you, but so that you will seek him, right? And then when you seek him, or as you, as you come to him, uh, as this bride does to the bridegroom, it's, it's just, I mean, it's the renewal of this marriage, the renewal of this wedding. And the location here in the Old Testament is, is always going to be the temple. So if you said, where are the people, or, or the tabernacle, depending on where in the history you are, where will you find God? Obviously, Obviously, it's in his temple. Now, where will you find God in the New Testament? Well, John tells us, John tells us, gives us this great image of Jesus being the new tabernacle, the new temple. So Jesus takes on flesh, he, and he tabernacles among us. He dwells among us so that when we, seek for, when we seek him, we can find him in his flesh and blood, in this way. Take a look at the quotation that I have on the bottom of the page there, the bottom of the back page. This, this description of um, the pattern that we see here in Song of Songs that tells the story of Israel and tells our story is just fantastic. Listen to what Robert Jensen says. The exodus through the desert was, was the Lord's creation of his people. And I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt is his identity. Which putative God is Israel's and so the only real God? Whoever it was who rescued Israel from Egypt and led her through and out of the desert into the land. So how do you know who God is? Well, God is the one who rescued us from Egypt. That's the one who he is, the one who is steadfast and faithful. Um, he, is, he is the God. And if the Exodus identifies God, then the temple, once built, identified Israel. To be a member of this people was to gather around this place where the Lord's name and glory had located themselves. According to the Jewish theologian Michael, the peculiarity of the God of Israel is that he has a street address. Number one, Temple Square. 
Christianity is constituted by a new event that both confirms and adds to these identifications. Which putative God is the church's God? Whoever it was who rescued Israel from the land of tombs and her Messiah from the tomb itself. And who are the Christians? They are those who gather around the portable temple of Christ's Eucharistic body. They are the bride coming from the desert, fragrant with the anointing oils of baptism and surrounded by the cloud of incense in the high, that in high liturgy envelops the Eucharistic gifts to join with the Lord. It's just like what you saw on Sunday when the wind was blowing this way and the smoke covers the altar, right? Sometimes it blows the other way. But we got a new air handler, so it's hopefully going to blow that way more. Um, what the, the richness, the value of this is... Um, in the first place, just sort of absorbing the beauty of it, right? Uh, the fact that the, the best language to speak about this kind of love, these kinds of relationships is poetic, tells you one thing. Um, but even more than that, even bigger than that, is the fact that what you experience, even on a daily basis, right, in the liturgy, in your, uh, in your seeking after God, where he may be found here in the Eucharist, um, you're actually living the same life that Israel lived. You're, the, you're doing the very same thing that they did um, faithfully, right? Uh, it, your story is the same as their story. You have this extraordinary continuity. It's, I mean, we live in an age when, when religions can pop up left and right you know, at somebody's whim, right? It's, somebody just said this former... Um, Former, I think he was a, a developer for Uber, um, who's confident in the future of artificial intelligence, established a 501c3 that's a religion that worships artificial intelligence. Like, it's on the books. It's, it's acknowledged by the tax code, right? Um, the strange, strange thing. Well, this, that is not your religion, and that is not your God, God who just appears out of nowhere, but he's the, he's the one who has proven himself by works mightier than you can imagine, right? Works that began by calling a people out of nothing, um, claiming them as his own, being faithful to them even when they were faithless to him, and using, using even their faithless deeds to bring, about, to bring his Messiah, um, who, who you know, rescues you from sin and death and gives you his flesh and blood. It's such a full picture um, and you get to participate in it in fully when you're here at the when you're here at the liturgy. Do you have any questions? Go ahead, Carol. <coughs> Going back to the quote, identify Israel. Yeah. Is what happened in Ezekiel when God left? Yeah, they had a problem, didn't they? Right. That so this was a crisis for. For the Jews, when the because if your temple is destroyed, you've got you've got some things that identify you as Jews, right? You've got the Torah, God's encoded law, and you have the temple. And if the temple is destroyed, you, there can be no sacrifices, right? There can be no uh, continuance of this relationship with God. Your your relationship with God is completely contingent. Um, it's dependent on some future when the temple is restored and the people of Israel are brought together again. Um, which is why Jesus, you know, for one thing, prophesied the destruction of the temple of, in Jerusalem. Jesus over and over again says, look, this is going to happen. These stones are going to fall from, one from one on top of the other. 
Um, and in that day, he prophesied doom and gloom. It happened. If you ever read, if you get a chance to read the history of A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem, it is brutal. And it's no wonder that, uh, that it was hard to maintain faith in those days when the temple was destroyed. But Jesus comes along and he tells us, um, he says, I am the temple, right? Forget about these stones. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it because I'm the new temple, right? Raised, I will be raised from the dead by my father who is the same God who raised Israel from the dead and that's how, you, that's how you're going to find him now, right? And a sacrifice better than the sacrifices made by the priests which had to be made year after year to atone, a sacrifice once for all. Yeah, so I mean, this was this happened. That's right. It was devastating for the people, right? So what God God was absent. They hadn't. They didn't have a way to find him. It's just like in Samuel when Saul sins against the Lord, and um, so Saul sins against the Lord, and he seeks to um, talk. He he seeks counsel from God, and God does not respond. God does not answer. Do you know what he did when God did not answer? He went, and, he went and found a witch and summoned Samuel from the dead. A bad idea, right? Didn't, didn't seek God where he, where he could be found, right, um, in his prophets, right? So, the, I mean, the people were never left without hope, but it was always a th- it was, there was always this threat. What if there are no prophets? What if there's nobody to speak the word? What if there's no place, no home for God? What are we going to do, right? Um, yes, Krista. Because I think it's still amazing that the Jews doesn't believe uh, after 2,000 years that Jesus is a substitute for the temple. Yeah. You know, they are still waiting, I think, on to build the temple again or whatever. Right, right, yeah. I mean, it's... it's um, in some ways, it's not surprising, right? Because you're, it's, it's uh, asking a people who've, who've uh, have this inheritance from thousands and thousands of years ago to believe that what, everything, their hope, that their hopes have actually once been fulfilled. Um, think about what it's, what it's like to, to reach a point where you're, everything that you've been waiting for has actually been fulfilled and it doesn't look like what you want it to look like, right? To have a new temple that's not actually a building. Uh, you'd probably just as soon reject that, right? Okay. Hopefully this all made some sense. Um, it's, it's, a, it's sort of the, the curse of these kinds of, of this poetry is that it's not always coherent, but I think, um, well, hopefully it gives you some things to think about. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. Thanksgiving next week, so don't come to Bible class on Friday. But the following week, we will meet again. Okay?